Thank you very much. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that good stuff. How you guys doing? Good to see you. It's exciting to be in Colorado. There's a lot of excitement in Colorado today because there's this little local team. And I'm excited about it. I love basketball, so I'm kind of... <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. That's good. A lot of orange in the house today. That's good. And uh, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I just heard that there is someone here with us at Timberline this morning who is 101 years old. And I want us to put our hands together. Funny, you're all looking around, <laughs> and it's not me, honey. Okay, so, all right. Well, uh, we're not in a series right now, so the team just said to me, "Preach on whatever you like." How many know that's dangerous? So this message today, faith in the fog, John 21. There's a fair amount of scripture that I'm going to read. Uh, I think it's uh, wonderful. My favorite. This is my favorite portion uh, of scripture, and uh, I love to have the opportunity to preach on this. So John 21, and it says this. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved. Hold on a minute. Who is that? John. Okay. Who wrote this? Just saying, just saying. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. It happened when I was about 12. It was a big surprise. Yeah, just 12 years of age, about 25 years ago now. Thanks for your support. It was one of the biggest shocks of my life. My maternal grandmother uh, had a house about seven miles from the English coast. It was an old house. The rafters were reputed to be a thousand years old, made from an old ship. And uh, every summer I'd go and spend the summer with my grandma. And I used to go to this, this, this beach seven miles away. It was a pretty ugly beach, pebbly and seaweed and a dilapidated pier that had been battered by a storm and I made a summer friend. His name was John and every summer we'd connect and we'd boat and fish and hang out and do mischievous things. I know you find that difficult to believe. And I'd see him for the summer and then I'd go back to London and I wouldn't see him again for a whole year. I'd just show up and we'd pick up where we left off. I remember the shock. When I showed up for my summer meeting with John, I walked down the street where he lived, turned the corner, and his house was gone. I mean, their house was gone. They decided to build a parking lot in that area. They demolished his house, and he was gone, and I didn't see him. I haven't seen him or heard from him from that day till this. I've often wondered what happened to John, my friend. But when I go back to that place, ladies and gentlemen, I feel this sense, sounds a bit weird, you'll understand it, some of you, I feel this sense of time claustrophobia. Ever felt like that? Where you feel locked in, hemmed in by the present, and you kind of just wish you could jump into a machine and go back to those carefree summer days for just another hour. But I go back there and my friend is not there. So it's all the same and it's totally different. I wonder whether the disciples, whether the disciples felt like that when they went back to their home area of Galilee. Because Galilee, this was their stomping ground. This was where they'd experienced three heady, amazing, confusing, powerful years with Jesus. Now he's alive, but they've seen him in Jerusalem. They've been told to go back to Galilee, but he's not there. And they go to this beach. Uh, this is a photograph of the actual beach. It's now called Tabgar, a couple of miles from Capernaum, where Peter had his family home. They went to that beach. The Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It's 680 feet below sea level, so sudden storms can whip the water up into what Matthew describes in the Greek version of his gospel as a watery earthquake. It's a turbulent area, as well as a place where there's serenity too. And now perhaps they're thinking, he's not here. One writer says, nostalgia is the suffering caused by an unappeased yearning to return. He's not here. It's the same but different. And they're confused as well. Let's not get the idea that because Jesus was alive, that that fixed everything. That, that sorted out all the questions. Actually, 
a tsunami had hit them of confusion and a mingling of joy and bewilderment. Let me, let me quote to you some of the statements that describe the disciples' mindset that come from the New Testament. They were startled, frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. They were troubled, doubting. They needed to have their minds open to understand. They were afraid, yet filled with joy. They worshipped, but some doubted. They were trembling, bewildered, and afraid. They did not believe. They stubbornly refused to believe. They were overjoyed. There's this mingling here. They're kind of confused. They're in the fog. And I don't think they expected to meet Jesus in that very early morning fishing trip. For one thing, it's Galilee. The last time they saw Jesus, 68 miles away it was in Jerusalem. That's a long way. Not only that, but theologically these are Jewish boys and they knew that Messiah would send to his activities in Jerusalem, not Galilee. They probably didn't think they'd meet him. It's an unusual time as well. It's the early hours of the morning, the middle of the night. John, in his gospel, uses night and day like an artist with a color palette to not only describe the event, but also to paint the mood surrounding the event. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Judas goes away from Jesus by night. John is using language to create the mood here. And then Jesus shows up in such an ordinary way because they don't figure out that it's him. If I had been given the opportunity to arrange the choreography of the resurrection, it would have been different. I'd have had 64,000 angels tap dancing on the beach in fluorescent yellow Doc Martins. I would have had the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a huge choir playing and singing the Hallelujah Chorus, prophetically, because it hadn't been written at that point. I would have had a Navy jet swooping overhead with He is Alive in red, yellow and blue smoke. I'd have had Cecil B. DeMille meet Steven Spielberg resurrection. But they don't even know it's him. I'm not being irreverent when I say it would have been kind of helpful if Jesus in the resurrection appearances would have had one of those badges you wear at conferences, stick on, you know. Hi, Jesus. You can imagine a couple of angels leaning over the parapet of heaven. One says to the other, what doth our Lord doeth now? The other one says, he cooketh breakfast. And Jesus must have gone fishing or shopping that morning because he's already got breakfast prepared. I don't think he stood by the Sea of Galilee and just said, Tilapia, come forth! <laughs> the beauty of it is that it's all so ordinary. And then there's Peter. Poor old Peter. He'd messed up. I'll never deny you, Jesus. That lasted less than 24 hours. Then he tries to defend Jesus and ends up cutting a guy's ear off. I don't think he aimed for the ear, did he? I don't think he thought, I'll give him a minor surgery. Couldn't even get that right. He's had one private meeting with Jesus. All we know about it is that it was private and secondly, that it happened on Easter Day. No other details are shared. So there's all kinds of unresolved stuff. And I think these guys felt confused and struggling and pretty rough. Isn't it boring when as a Christian you feel sad? Can I just say that that happens? Sometimes we give the impression that if you just become a follower of Jesus, you're going to be on the edge of ecstasy at all times. My, you are going to be happy. 
remember when I became a Christian in 1731. <laughs> we used to sing ridiculous songs that implied that we were always happy. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. That hurt. I am H-A-P-P-Y. Another great theological classic was, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. No, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. For if you pack up all your troubles, then they'll vanish like a bubble. If you only take the trouble, just to S-M-I-L-E. It's enough to make you V-O-M-I-T. Gag. The normal Christian life is not being, about being on the edge of ecstasy at all times. It's about being in the Jesus life. Jesus cried. He wept. He was sad. He got lonely. He needed his friends. Get away from the idea that Jesus somehow wants to have us in a state of eternal ecstasy because we live in a creation that groans for the coming of God when everything will be different. But what does Jesus do? Well, he, he cooks some breakfast. Now, people are saying, and what is the significance of the breakfast that our Lord cooked for his disciples? Why did he do this? Well, here is a revelation. I think, first of all, he cooked them breakfast. Get ready to write this down. Because they were hungry. Yes. yes. I know that's deep. And I say that because I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that we have bodies. We forget that our physical being affects our emotional being, affects our spiritual being, but we spiritualize everything. And we say, I'm feeling a bit weary, so there must be 73,000 demons camping in my bathroom. I rebuke them. No, stop rebuking them. Just get a good night's sleep. Stay off the pizza. Actually, I like pizza. You get my drift. The physical affects the spiritual. He cooks them breakfast. But there are other things that are contained in the breakfast episode. Let's take a look. Number one, if you're following in the bulletin. Number one, there's a call to purpose rather than mere survival here. There's a call to purpose rather than mere survival. Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you got any fish? Have you ever noticed, my friends, how much conversation there is in this narrative about fish? There's a lot of fish talk. I'm going fishing, says Peter. We'll go fishing with you, say the disciples. They go out, they fish. We are told they catch nothing. Jesus shows up, says, how are you doing with the fishing? Don't think you've got any. They give him a fishing update. Jesus gives fishing directions. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. We are told that they catch fish, that the nets don't break, and that they catch 153 fish. And now it's time for breakfast. Guess what's on the menu? Fish. There's a lot of fish here. And then by the fireside, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? These what? These? The Greek is not emphatic about what these are. The traditional approach is that Jesus was saying to Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? But really? Peter had already tried that one. That didn't go well. It's a question, not a statement. Don't rush up to me afterwards and say you got it wrong. I'm just speculating but there are commentators and theologians who are speculating in the same direction. Is it possible that Jesus was saying to Peter, do you love me more than you love fish? Think about it. Fisherman Peter would have an easy life. 
Fisherman Peter wouldn't have to worry about persecution or prison or church doctrine. All he had to do was fish. Get up in the morning, go fishing. Come home, nothing still on TV for a couple of thousand years, another early night. Get up the next day, go fishing. Quiet life, easy. Survival, easy. Sometimes I could be tempted by that. Sometimes I don't want to worry about eternal issues and, 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 and the problems of the universe. Sometimes I, I, just want to, I just want to fish. I don't want a purpose-driven life. I don't want purpose and I don't want driven. I just want a life. The temptation to just function, survive. But that's never going to work. Because if you have been kissed by a vision of the kingdom of God, mere survival just is not going to work for you anymore. You are wonderfully messed up forever. We're even told how many fish were caught. 153. The commentators go ballistic about 153. What does this number mean, they say? One commentator says 153 fish uh, the number of different uh, tribes and nations in the, the world at that time, each fish representing a nation. Does my face say it? I don't think so. Another one says 153 fish. The number of different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee at that time, Jesus gave his disciples one of each species. Another one, incredibly, says 153, a, a triangular number that would have impressed ancient Pythagorean philosophers. What? Like Jesus said, I know what I'll do. I'll give them 153 fish, because that will impress ancient Pythagorean philosophers. I believe, my brothers and sisters, that I am able to reveal unto you this morning in Timberline the reason why we are told there were 153 fish. So brace yourselves, this mystery can be solved here and now. It is because that's how many fish they caught. I mean, I'm intrigued by this. What kind of shadow is sitting on the beach with a resurrected Jesus right there and some sad person is going, 83, 84, 84. Did they catch the catch of their lives so they'd realize that the catch of their lives would never be enough? I don't care how full your net gets, how much stuff, whatever success. Real living is found not in the survivalism of go to work, get the money, buy the food, give me the strength, go to work, get the money, buy the food, give me the strength, go to work. Real life is found in following Jesus and his purpose. Secondly, there's an offer of grace for our greatest regrets. There's an offer of grace for our greatest regrets. Verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Have you noticed something? In the New Testament, John always understands before Peter, and Peter always takes action before John. 
That's the way it is. So who is it who figures out that it's Jesus on the shore a hundred yards away? It's John. Look what happens. It is the Lord. Splash. But he goes, hmm. But he goes, oh. Peter's already taken off. He's put his coat on before he gets out of the boat, which is a bit Monty Python, but I haven't got a clue about that. He runs up onto the beach. There's a fire there. A fire there. Difficult word to say. When's the last time you see a fire in John's Gospel? John chapter 20, Peter is warming his hands by that fire and he's denying Jesus. Now he runs up exuberantly. It's the Lord! There's a fire. What's going on? Is Jesus tormenting Peter with his failure? I don't think so. I think that Jesus is locating himself in Peter's story and Jesus is conducting some shame surgery. He is inviting Peter to sit down by a fire, the fire expressing the reality of his denial, and then say, I love you, Jesus. You see, shame silences your worship. But Jesus wants us to face our failures, not marginalize them, not excuse them, not say, well, this wasn't that big of a deal. Not say, God, you'll probably forget this. God never forgets our sins. Rather, he says, I will remember them no more. That's altogether different. And Peter is invited to face the reality of his failure and yet once again worship and love. Don't pretend that that stain in your history didn't happen. It was the great Augustine who said, we place ourselves behind our own backs, refusing to see ourselves. But rather allow Jesus to sit down by the fire of your failure and mine and once again still be able to say, I love you, Lord. What did you drag into 2014 that you dragged into 13, that you dragged into 12, that you dragged into 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1? Millennium. Sit down by the fire. No grace, which is outrageous. Scandalous. Thirdly, there's a command to focus and avoid distractions. There's a command to focus and avoid distractions. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? I used to be irritated with John. All this, the disciple whom Jesus loved stuff. Did he have a badge? He loves me more than you. Yeah. I used to be irritated with him. I am no longer. I'm sure he's relieved. I think John decided that the most important news about John was the fact that Jesus loved him. So names were not so important. But imagine it, Peter has just been told that he's going to be executed. Can you stop for a moment and think about the implications of that? Jesus prophesied three times over Peter. Number one, you're going to be sifted like wheat because Satan is after you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Whew, struggling times ahead. Number two, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
or you're going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. Number three, you're going to be executed. You'd have questions, wouldn't you? When? Is it going to hurt? How soon is this going to happen? Shall I forget the diet? I make you smile, but actually all kinds of practical questions. We see, see, we read this as if Peter just went, oh, okay, good deal. He is going to live on prophetic death row for the rest of his life. I've often thought about this. If, if God said to me, now listen, Lucas, would you like to know when and how you're going to die? You ever thought about that? Maybe it's just me, I'm weird. I think I'd probably say, if it's all right with you, I'd like you to hold on that information. Thank you very much. I don't want to know. Now, Peter knows that he will be imprisoned and executed. You'd have questions, and then the disciple whom Jesus loved shows up, because they've been walking on the beach. Now, it's understandable. Peter says, what about him? You got one for him. And Jesus gave Peter a shoulder massage and saith unto him, Do not be troubled, son, because John will be exiled in Patmos and they will attempt to boil him alive, but he will survive. So he's going to have his rough stuff too. Fear not. No. Jesus said, What's that to you? <laughs> Which being interpreted means, Mind your own business follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes what we do is we get focused on stuff that doesn't matter or isn't our business. It can happen in church. I love being part of Timberline, but there are lots of irritating people here, including moi. Do not say amen. If you have been part of this church for more than six months and no one's irritated you yet, you're probably clinically dead. We have a vast array of opportunities to irritate you. You know what happens? We, we, get, we get kind of bent out of shape. And they didn't use my translation of the Bible. They didn't sing my... It was too loud this morning. It was too soft this morning. Someone is sitting in my seat. The seat Jesus gave me. Those of you, those of you at the back, our brother here just said, you got it, brother. He's obviously in great pain. <laughs> Actually, you're sitting in the seat where you always sit. That's my point. Actually, you're big enough. No one's going to mess with you, dude. I can't believe I just said that. And you know what Jesus says to us as we chunter away and we get ourselves all bent out of shape? Sometimes what he says to us is, what is that to you? Follow me. Follow me. Is there a distraction that we need to lose sight of? Well, fourthly and finally, there's a repeat of calling that was offered before. There's a repeat of calling that was offered before. Jesus says, you must follow me. Is anyone noticing a similarity for, uh, with this episode to a previous episode in the New Testament? John 21 is a replay of Luke chapter 5. 
Luke chapter 5 happened three years earlier at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he first met Peter. It's Galilee, it's miraculous catch of fish, it's follow me. It's a rebuilding of the scenery. Jesus is reconstructing the memory for Peter, but now he's inviting Peter to continue to follow him, now knowing all that Peter now knew. For one thing, this was the place where Peter had walked on water. Anyone here ever walked on water? Let's be honest, anyone ever tried? There are more in this service who have tried than any other service this weekend. We should start a club. I've tried it. I I was staying at a hotel, I was preaching somewhere, the swimming pool was deserted and I thought, I think I'm going to give it a try. So I put my swimsuit on because faith without works is dead. (laughs) And I stepped onto the water with just my bathing suit and cowboy boots. (laughs) Get that picture out of your mind. (laughs) And I sat but it looks like a lot of fun. There are days when you walk on water. There are seasons when you walk on water, when your prayers are being answered, when life is great, the sky is blue, the fog is cleared, and there are days when you have to wade through the water to get to Jesus, and the tide swells around you, and you're not sure whether you're going to make it. There are walking on water days. There are walking through water days. The main thing is Jesus is there in both contexts. I became a Christian when I was 17. I gave my life to Jesus. I didn't have a wife and kids and a mortgage, and I gave my life to him. And now I'm 57, 40 years have passed and I've been around the block and I've seen the church at her best and her worst. And I've seen people miraculously healed of illnesses and I've had friends die from illnesses even though the prayer group prayed. When I was 17 I said, I want to follow you. The question is, what about now? Sometimes following him just involves a lot more trust. You know, when you stand on a beach, it's a portrait of mystery. Because when you stand on the beach, you look out there, don't you? And you see everything. There's no tower block. There's no truck to obstruct your view. You see it all as far as the earth's curvature will allow. And you see nothing. You don't see the teeming plankton or the whales or the sharks or the jellyfish or the coral. You see it all, and in seeing it all, you recognize that you see virtually nothing. And for some of us today who are wading through the water and it's heavy, it isn't about having the answer, it is about putting your trust in the God promises to be with you, walking on it, walking through it, he'll be there. But the question remains, as Jesus gave Peter the prophetic update, this is what we've been through together, son. This is what's on the horizon. 
now a two-word question offered to Peter, offered to me, offered to you. Follow me? Thank you, Lord Jesus, because you cook breakfast for weary disciples and friends of yours. Thank you because you built a fire and you allowed a fragile failure like Peter to sit down and offer love and loyalty to you again. We pray today for those of us who realize that there is scandal in our past and our worship has been silenced and our joy has been mugged by our shame. Give us the ability in these moments to sit by the fire with you not somehow pretend that what we regret didn't happen but to bring it to you and to whisper our faltering words of love to you knowing that you will accept them and us in the quietness maybe this is a word for you sit by the fire even through tears to say I love you Lord and for others of us Lord there's a, an opportunity here especially those of us who are walking through water to say I will love you and follow you now History is gone and will never be repeated. I'm not the same person that I was. But now in this season, with these challenges, with what I now know, I will follow you. As our heads are bowed, I, I want to do something we don't often do in Timberline. I want to ask you, first of all, in a moment there'll be an opportunity for people to become Christians. If you're not a Christian, there's a moment coming up where you can make that decision. You can begin that journey. But while you're thinking about that, let me speak to fellow Christians here. Perhaps this morning is an opportunity for us to say, in this season, in the now of my life, I want to say yes to following you. And I want to invite you, as I've done throughout the services this weekend, for you to physically do something to indicate that. For some of us, it means just opening a hand in front of us. Others of us might want to mark this moment by just quietly standing or kneeling where you are. Or if you're near an aisle, as people have been doing over this weekend, you might even want to step out to the aisle and just quietly kneel there. But if you would like to say to him, 
in this season, I will follow you. I invite you to do something now to indicate that. Go ahead. There's people around this place are doing that. Some standing, some kneeling. Now, in this season, moment we're going to pray, but before we pray, I would love to give an opportunity right now for any of us here who are not currently followers of Jesus. You're not a Christian, and you know you want to be. You don't understand it all, but you don't want to just spend your life, figuratively speaking, fishing. You'd like to know God, to know His forgiveness, to know His direction, and you'd like to invite Him to take charge. You're weary of night fishing that begins with a decision a choice to say I'll follow you Peter was offered a choice we're offered choices and so even as people are standing and others have got their hands in front of them and others still are kneeling if you would like to become a Christian today whatever your current posture can I ask you as I look around would you just slip your hand up for a moment please and then put it down again. That's your way of saying, I want to start this journey. Go ahead, do that now, if that is your choice. Slip your hand up. It's a decisive act. And put it down again. Thank you for doing that, those of you who are. Right where you are, just pray in your heart your own prayer. Just call out in your heart to him. Ask him to rescue you, save you. He has done everything that is needed on the cross to deal with the barriers between us and God. It's all been done. Now invite him to take charge. Please know as well that when our service ends a few minutes from now, our prayer team will be at the front here. We would love to pray with you and we have materials. They're free. We'd like to give those to you to help you in this journey. This is a monumental moment. So, Lord, you see the fluttering of our hearts, the tumbling thoughts in our brains. You see it. As we offer ourselves to you, show us afresh what it means to follow you, walking on water, walking through it. For those who are coming to you for the first time, reveal yourself to them. May they know that they are passing from death to life today. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. So, Lord, we go now in the knowledge of that greatness, more than a lyric in a song, it is the truth that sits at the heart of the universe. Great is your power. Great is your love. Great is your grace. We go in that grace with gratitude and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. Prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we would love to do that. God bless you.